Ah, it's good to bring an oldie back every once in a while, huh? Kind of tugs at your heart in a different way. Um, if you're new here, if you're a guest, welcome. My name's Britt. I'm one of the pastors here. And if Sunridge is your home church, welcome back. Uh, I'm going to do something that we haven't done in a long time at the beginning of a service. I want us to read together the scripture that we're going to look at. So I'm going to invite you to do that. We can do this together, right? We're going to remain standing while we do it. So we're going to put the verses up on the screen from Colossians chapter 1. I'll do my best to like lead you along, but tr just try to stay with me, okay? You guys ready? We can do this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints. The faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. Good job! Good job. Let's pray. God, we pray that as we look at your scripture and talk about the, the things that were surrounding this text from the Apostle Paul, that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher, that you would nudge us in ways that we need to be nudged and encourage us and inspire us and elevate, elevate our thoughts uh, to your Son, Jesus Christ, more, more than anything else. And we'll give you the praise for that. Amen. Thanks. You can be seated. You know, um, some people ask if, if this might be a new thing to you to kind of look at a, an entire series of scripture from the beginning to the end in a book. And uh, if you've never done that, you're going you're gonna to love this. For the next 10 weeks, we're going to look at this letter from the Apostle Paul to the church at Colossae. It's going to be 10 weeks. It'll, we'll wrap up uh, the Sunday before Easter. And um, the reason why we're doing this is, you know, first of all, it's my favorite way to teach the Bible, uh, verse by verse, uh, just starting at the beginning and going through the end. Um, what I love about it is it, it, it imposes some things on us. It makes us talk and look at some things that we normally wouldn't. We just all have biases, and we want to skip over the parts that we don't want to look at. And then, But bigger picture than that, it, it gives us the big picture. It puts everything that we're going to read in context. And we try to do our best, you know, like when we're like dropping in on a scripture and a topical message, um, to, to like put it in context quickly. But this allows us to kind of build and, the, and uh, this letter in particular allows to build on some of the thoughts that were influencing uh, why Paul was writing this. Now, some people would say, why Colossians? You know, why'd you pick that one? Well, believe it or not, I pray about my messages. I put my heart into it. I think about you guys. I think about where we are, our cultural context. I talk to our staff. I talk to some of my counselors, people that I really admire. And, you know... This book is just, this letter has been on my mind for a long time. You know, and what I discovered once I jumped into it, I didn't know this initially, but many scholars feel like this is Paul's most profound letter. 
that he wrote because what you're going to see is that he elevates Christ above anything else. And I can't think of a day and time where that wouldn't be more helpful to us. Now, before we look at the text, what I want to do is just kind of give you the picture of what was going on. So let's talk about the city of Colossae itself. It's located about 100 miles inland from Ephesus, so you know that you know, a lot of the places that Paul visited were along ports, uh, along the sea somewhere. This is about 100 miles inland from Ephesus, but it's still on a major trade route. So because it is, you know, there's so much trade, this is kind of like a cosmopolitan and multicultural area. So like to, to give you a picture, think urban, think Think business center, think big city in America, think a mix of ethnicity and races and religions and thoughts and, and cultures and different demographics and different kinds of businesses. It's a place where people are making a living and some people are getting super wealthy. And because it's this, this cosmopolitan region, there's a constant influx of new ideas and philosophies and cultural trends and different beliefs. Those are all flooding in. They're all part of the community of faith here called uh, the Colossian Church. Now, a lot of the places that, you, that we read about that where Paul started churches, they were primarily um, former uh, people who followed the Jewish religion. So in many cases, like in um, Antioch, um, Jerusalem, you have a church that is primarily people that have followed the God of the Bible, but in a different way when Christ comes uh, to earth. But the population or demographic in Colossae is mainly Gentile. So Gentile means pagan. Gentile means all kinds of different experiences and, uh, you know, n- not much religious background at all. So that's the community. But the church at Colossae, let's talk about that. You know, uh, when... When you go through the New Testament, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, and then you have a bunch of letters that are written by Paul, right? Um, those letters are typically written back to churches that he founded. If you don't know the, who the Apostle Paul is, he was uh, miraculously converted, not a person who was following Jesus. He comes to believe in Jesus Christ, and he believes, he gets the full Jesus, And so he wants to take the gospel around the known world, and he makes these missionary trips and founds churches. He starts churches in different regions, and these letters are often him writing back to them, to this church. Either he can't visit them, maybe a problem came up, maybe he's on another journey, maybe in this case he's in prison, so he cannot visit them, and yet he has to address some things that are happening there. In Colossae, he's never been there. As far as we can tell, Paul has never been there, and you're going to see that he's only heard about this church. This church is founded not by Paul, but by two laypersons, one named Epaphras and one named Philemon. How many of you are familiar with the name Philemon? How many of you read Philemon recently? Yeah. So how about Jude? Did you know that those are New Testament books? Philemon and Jude. So if you want to impress people today, when you go to your Super Bowl party and say, yeah, you know, after church, I just read an entire book in the Bible, read Philemon. It's one chapter. And the reason is that will be the last 
of our study in this series because Philemon is part of the crew that started this church, and we're going we're to learn some amazing things when we get to that. But Epaphras and Philemon apparently became Christians through Paul's ministry in Ephesus, and so they become co-workers with him, and so they've, they've gone back and founded this church, and it seems like that Epaphras has requested Paul's help in something. He's, even though Paul hasn't been there, he's going to write a letter back to them to address uh, what uh, scholars and historians will tell us are like two streams of heresy that were affecting believers there. One stream came from without, and one stream came from within. I want to talk about the, the stream of heresy, this false belief that was coming from without, first of all, Eastern philosophies. And the primarily, uh, they were challenged by something called Gnosticism. Look at someone next to you right now and say Gnosticism. Very good, very good. So you're learning big words today. Gnosticism are, uh, comes from gnosis, which means to know. So a Gnostic is someone who is in the know. And we, we use the phrase agnostic, which putting that in front of Gnostic means to not know. Someone who's agnostic says, I don't know. But a Gnostic believed that spirituality is achieved through knowledge. And they felt superior because they had knowledge. In fact, they were so, in the most extreme case of Gnosticism, they made a separation between what you thought and what you did with your body. And so you could believe wholeheartedly in a faith in Jesus, but you could do anything with your body. You could, you could worship at a pagan uh, temple that utilized prostitutes in worship, and yet you could still hold your faith in Christ. There was no connection between what they thought and what they did. What you did didn't matter. It was what you knew. And so the Gnostics said, the more I know, the more spiritual I am. They measured their worth before God by the things that they knew. Now, that's the, that's the stream that's affecting the church from without. But there was another stream of heresy that came from within, and it was religious traditions. Even though the major demographic was made up of Gentiles in Colossae, there was still a presence of those who were following Christ, but their former religion was the Hebrew religion. And so coming from that, they had all these experiences of, of how to worship God and what it meant to be holy. And, and a, a large part of that for them was tied to their ceremonies that they performed or the rituals that, that they went through. Paul's going to address some of those, whether it was a festival that they thought was important to maintain in their new faith or it was circumcision. They just felt like these things that you did, is you, you had to do these things and do them the right way, and that's what religion was. Spirituality was achieved by rituals and ceremonies. So as long as you did those as long as you performed these religious acts, you were spiritual. So these threats to the church in terms of what they believed came from without, and it came from within. And what made it so dangerous to the church was another word that's, it's, this is already in your notes, syncretism. Look at your neighbor now and say syncretism. See, if nothing else, you learned some big words today. Throw those down at the Super Bowl. 
Syncretism is the blending of religious and cultural and philosophical thought. So here's the picture. All of these people, whether they, whether they came from without the church, with no background, or whether they came within the Hebrew religion, they were all influenced. They had experiences. They had values. They had things that they thought were important. And those they globbed on to their new Christian faith. So whether you came from a pagan background or a Hebrew one, there was a little bit of heresy for everyone. There was plenty to go around. And it was influencing their core beliefs about what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. But the, but the thing was, and this is what the key to syncretism is, the, sync, the, the, the fact that they blended in made the heresy imperceptible to them. See, they just carried it along with them. And so it wasn't like they were saying, I believe in Jesus and then I believe in these old things. It all got brought together and mashed together. You know, that wasn't just a threat to the church then. It's a, it's a threat to the church today. Because slowly and imperceptibly, we begin to embrace the doctrine of salvation of Jesus plus. That's what they had. Jesus plus these things that I know that make me better. Jesus plus these religious activities that I'm, I'm involved in that make me better. See, the threat to Christianity, to, to the essence of Christian faith, is not a Jesusless faith. It's Jesus plus. Jesus plus good deeds. Jesus plus my preferred doctrinal position. Jesus plus the right Bible translation. Jesus plus the right way to do church or rituals that are part of the church. Jesus plus my favorite kind of teaching or whatever. We can just, we just pull our thoughts, our preferences in to our Christian faith. And it's done imperceptibly, which makes it almost impossible for me to talk about it, doesn't it? But if we keep going back to the essence of the truth, we're going to find it. That's what Paul is pointing out in kind of the middle of chapter 2, which we're going to get to eventually. But here's what Paul says, and this is kind of like to the theologians that, that study this, that are far smarter than me, this is like a pivot point in the book. This is core, this is fundamental to understanding this letter from Paul. Paul says to them, for in him, that is Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him, you have been made complete. What Paul is trying to do is he's elevating Christ and the true gospel, which we'll talk about today, far above our religious traditions and far above the things that, that we believe from the outside of our faith that are filtering and coloring the way we look at Jesus. Paul is saying that the influences from within and the influences from without distance us from the true Christian faith that Jesus calls us to. And that faith that he calls us to is more than just something to know, and it's more than something that we do. The gospel doesn't just do something for you. 
It does something to you. And the, in these first eight verses of Paul's letter, we have what I'm going to call the fruit of the gospel. He actually calls two of them that. So two of the things I'm going to talk about are explicit in the text. He calls it the fruit of the gospel. And then one is implicit. And I want to look at that first. What is the fruit of the gospel? What happens to people who embrace the true gospel of Jesus Christ? That's the question. What does it do for us? And then what does it do to us? First of all, the gospel produces love for the church. Love for the church. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. These are, this letter's coming from Paul and likely Timothy is assisting him at assisting him, maybe scribing for him, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. This is a a very typical, common way Paul begins his letters to churches. He says, I pray for you, which tells you something about the way, why he how he feels about him, right? We pray about the things that matter to us. Paul says, I pray for you. And when I'm praying for you, I'm thankful for you. That's what comes up in my heart. That's why I say, Paul loved the church. In many churches, he knew people by face and by name. He He had these pictures of when he was there, but not with Colossians, not with those believers. Yet he says, I care about you just the same. With all of the problems that you have, and you have them, he says, I care about you. I'm thankful for you. He loved the church. You know, you wonder, like, how did people feel at that time when they got a letter from the great apostle Paul? I'm sure some people said, you know, I don't know what he thinks he's doing, getting in our business. But likely, especially these believers who had never met Paul, it had to like kind of strike them in their hearts to say, the Apostle Paul is writing us a letter? He's thinking of us? And in his greeting of the letter, he says, I think about you, I pray for you, and when I do, I'm thankful for you. Paul loved the church. And the reason why I draw that out is I think, excuse me, it's in vogue to kind of berate the church today and bash the church. I don't just mean, you know, grumpy Christians. But, you know, I'm seeing more and more popular Christian authors who are taking the church to task, berating it, and kind of like, coming at it with a spirit of arrogance. It's like that everything that's wrong with the church, I've identified, and here it is. But I'm not part of that. I'm better. In fact, some are even publicly saying, I'm so above it that I'm giving up on the church. Now, my point here is not to be critical of men and women that, that are doing that. What I'm saying is that I don't think that that's God's intention for us. You know, Paul got on the church. He pointed out things about them, but he never gave up on them. Paul loved the church. And I think today, those of us who 
are embracing the true gospel of Jesus Christ, we should emulate Paul in this way, and we should love the church, and we should love our church. Remember that the church is the bride of Christ. Paul talks about the church being the family of God. And we all know what happens when you trash talk someone's family, right? We don't do that. Now, that doesn't mean our family isn't perfect and our churches aren't perfect. But we don't talk about people that we love like that. Loving your church also means being a part of it. So you can't love something at a distance. You can't love something just as a spectator. When we, if we love the church, we're engaged in the church because it is our family, and it is the family of God. You know, we don't come to church to hear great messages. I, you, some of you are going like, amen, but... Um, <laughs> Or to hear great music, because you know what? You can do that without coming here. You can listen to my sermons on podcasts, and you can listen to a bunch of people that are far better Bible teachers than me on podcasts. And you can listen to the best Christian music through Pandora or Amazon Prime, whatever your thing is. You can load it up and listen to it. You don't need this gathering to do that, but what this gathering is on Sunday morning is it's your people. And more importantly, it's God's people. So, Christian, listen to me. When we gather together, we're not just being entertained. We're not just coming to hear Bible teaching, although it should be solid Bible teaching. We are worshiping God together because it is the family of God, and we love what God loves. Thank you for that one amen. I think that if the gospel produces love for the church, then we should love the church. And we should surround ourselves with people who are like-minded. Now, in verse 4, having never been there, Paul continues and he says, even though I haven't been there, I've heard some things about you. I'll start in verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for God's people. Can I just point out that Paul says, the thing I heard about these people is they have an incredible faith in Jesus Christ, and they have a love for God's people. You know, to me, that echoes Jesus' words when he said that there's no commandment greater than to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. It comes down to that. And that's what Paul heard about these believers. But then in verse 5, he adds hope to this list of fruit. There's, there's, lo- there's faith and there's love, but then in verse 5, he says, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven about which you have already heard and the true message of the gospel. Paul says that this true message, unadulterated, unfiltered by your commitment to certain traditions that were part of your past or even your pagan beliefs that you're drawing in, the true message of the gospel produces faith, hope, and love. Have you ever heard that around here before? That's our vision statement, isn't it? 
In the same way, verse 6, Paul says the gospel is bearing fruit. What kind of fruit is it bearing? Faith, hope, and love. And it is growing throughout the whole world just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace just as it has been doing in you. Do you see how Paul is like driving down here and he's saying there's a true message of the gospel, which means that there's a false one or an adulterated one. And that there are those that like, once you truly understood the grace of God, you bore fruit. The gospel produces faith, hope, and love. When we have the true message and when we fully understand God's grace, it produces these three qualities, these fruit in us. And in the context, in the background of what he's saying, we have to remember that in essence what he's saying is you can know a lot and not comprehend this. And you can do all the right things the right way, and yet you can miss the meaning of the gospel. Now, if you're just exploring faith and you're saying, you know, like, I don't know what it, I mean, you're just losing me. Um, the gospel means good news. And the good news of the gospel is that every person ever born is broken. Some of us are more broken than others. That's true. Some of us experience things in our situations or that just predetermined that we're, we're going to just self-destruct. But God's love for us overcomes all of that. That's the good news. The good news isn't you're bad, get right. The good news is we're all broken. And Jesus came to reconcile that brokenness to heal the places where we're broken. And that happens only through the grace of God. When, that is the true message of the gospel. So the gospel is this, that there's no one so far from God that they, that they cannot be reached by his love. And there's nobody so good that they don't need this same grace to be, to be poured upon them. And when our faith is rooted in that idea and this concept, that is, that is what Paul is calling the true message and the true gospel. And all someone who is seeking God must do to appropriate that is just to ask God to come into their lives and to say, God, I want that healing. I want you to reconcile the brokenness in me and make it what, it, what it, you intended for me. I am a sinner. I'm, I'm without hope. And I need you. Now, if you're a Christian, I, I read a quote recently where C.S. Lewis said that the, that the role of a pastor is often less instructing in new information than it is in reminding the church of the things that they've forgotten. Can I remind you, if you're a Christian, that our faith is rooted in this truth, that it's God's grace that saves us. And if that is true, there's no room for superiority. There's no room for pride. 
There's only humility and a gratitude in our hearts for what God has done in our lives. And when we're rooted in that, what comes out of our life, the, the fruit that grows on our branches, is faith, hope, love. And here's where it's easy to veer off. Here's where our gospel gets contaminated. Like the Colossians, we can start to think that I'm more spiritual because I know a lot. You got to know a lot. We're going to talk about that next week, how important the knowledge of God is. But that's not my goal. And there Churches do things all kinds of different ways. There are different traditions, and, and I'm not here to argue one over the other, but, you know, it isn't about our orthodoxy all the time. It's about what God is doing in my heart and what is coming out. Is it faith? Faith, by that I mean, is, are the roots of my belief so deep that it anchors me in life, that my life is centered on my belief in God's grace. I believe if that, if that is true, then what comes out of my life is a, is a desire to bring hope to the world and a desire to show the incredible love of God. And there is, is there a better time to do that for the Christian? Look, I know that a lot of us are afraid. We're afraid of what's happening in this world today. We're afraid of what's happening in our country. And we're afraid that the other kind of Christian is going to overtake us. But we can't be motivated by fear. You know, I, I listen, I'm, I totally nerd out on podcasts. I listened to a podcast this week that talked about how <clears throat> the biggest part of our brain is our frontal cortex. And one of the smallest parts of our brain is the amygdala. Do you know that all of our fear reactions come from the amygdala? It's about the size of an almond. And the biggest part of our brain where our reasoning and our ability to like think through processes, that's, that's the, we use that part of our brain the least because our brains are lazy. How do I react to this? Easiest thing is use that little part of my brain. Don't waste energy. React in fear. And I see Christians doing this. And yet I think... What the gospel calls us to do is respond with not just our frontal cortex, but our heart that is rooted in the gospel. There are, there are crazy things going on in our world today. What are we going to bring to the world? Are we going to bring fear? Are we going to be like them? Or are we going to be a people set apart that are distinguished by the presence of God in our lives, people who have experienced the grace of God in our lives? Are we going to respond by bringing hope to our world and demonstrating the love of God, are we going to be just like everybody else? That's the question. How are we meant to thrive? How has God designed us to live in a way that demonstrates the beauty of what God is doing in us and what he can do in the world? Is, God, is Jesus reconciling the world and healing it through us? In my house, on our kitchen counter, 
is a big fruit bowl. And what you should know if you're ever at my house is it's the, it's the fruit on the, on the top layer that's real fruit. The second layer is all fake fruit, but it looks real. So if there's ever a time where that top part isn't full, except maybe it has uh, Burt's Bees chapstick in it and some iPod uh, you know, earbuds, um, all the fruit's gone, don't reach for that fruit on the second layer. It's impressive. It looks beautiful, but it will not satisfy you. Don't pick the fake fruit. Live for the real fruit, which is faith, hope, and love. Okay. You guys are quiet. Last thing that I... Uh, fruit that the gospel produces is disciples who are disciple makers. It produces love for the church. It produces the fruit of faith, hope, and love. And it produces disciples who are disciple makers. In verse 6, Paul says, in the same way the gospel is bearing fruit, this is the picture that he's giving, that things grow in our lives because we're rooted in the gospel and growing throughout the whole world, just as it's been doing among you since the day you heard it. This is something about these believers from day one. Something was being produced in them. Fruit. And it tr and, and truly understood God's grace, just as it's been doing in you. And in verse 7, he reveals that it was a person who brought them this good news. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. In the beginning of, uh, when I was just giving you context, I talked about Epaphras and Philemon. Epaphras became a Christian. He was converted through Paul's ministry in Ephesus. And yet, you know, he didn't just like sit and soak. Epaphras had a desire when he grew in his faith. He wanted to take that faith back to his people, to his hometown. When Paul says you learned it, you Colossians, you learned it from Epaphras, that's equivalent to saying you were discipled. You were made a disciple. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty nine, learn of me. Become a follower of me. Become a disciple of me. Become my disciple. It's the same thing. The word disciple is used at least 260 times in the Gospels and in the rest of your New Testament. And in that day, a disciple isn't someone that just said the right prayer, someone that just sat and learned from a teacher like in a lecture and then said something. Discipleship at this time is a living, breathing thing. They didn't just learn from them. They walked with that mentor. And they learned by living and observing the way that their rabbi or their discipler lived. You see, these people in this city, this multicultural, multi-ethnic business center, they became Christians because a man named Epaphras came from 100 miles away to share the gospel with them. Now, you know, in California, we, we give driving distances by time. Did you know? I, I know this because I have Midwest family. 
We say, well, how far is it from Temecula to L.A.? We would say, well, three hours, right? Well, how far is it really? It's 90 miles. But people in the Midwest make fun of us for doing that. But we know that, like, you can't go by the miles because there's so many factors. It's really time. How far was 100 miles at that time? You, you wouldn't just say 100 miles. It would be a four-day's journey, pushing hard. And yet he had this burning passion to take that gospel back to them. So here's the pattern. Epaphras heard it from Paul, and then the Colossians heard it from Epaphras, and then the world, Paul said in verse 7, heard it from the Colossians. If you're a Christian, we can never forget that Jesus said disciples are to be made. And once that disciple is made, they're to be discipled. And once discipled, they're to go out and do the same. I'm going to ask the band to come up. And while they do, I want to ask you a question. Can you think of any place where the gospel is gone that a person didn't take it there? Those of you that are Christians today, I would imagine that there was a person that carried the gospel to you. Aren't you glad they did that? Aren't you glad that they traveled whatever distance they did, that they made an investment in you, that they answered your questions, that they offered you a ride to church, that they taught your Sunday school class? The gospel comes from a person. And I think that one of the the greatest tragedies that's happening in American Christianity today is that we are not making disciples who go out and make disciples. We have become enamored with knowing a lot and doing certain things. But we really have to boil down, like, is our Christian faith generating other Christians? Because that influences not just our orientation of life and how we how we see ourselves thriving? Do we, do we bring the kingdom of God into our community, into our cubicle, across the street? I know that we take it to Africa and clean water. I know that we'll take it to Community Mission of Hope here in reaching out to the homeless. I know that we take it around the world through sponsoring kids through Compassion International and World Vision. And many of you are involved in different ministries, but do we take it across the street? Do we take it to my second grade class? Do we take it to this team of little soccer kids that play soccer for me? It's like, that's what God has planned for us. That's what he's designed for us to be and do. This is where thriving is. And anything else is fake fruit. Uh, The first Sunday of every month, there's a group of us that we pray somewhere on this campus from 8.30 to 8.40, 10 minutes. And today we prayed in Miss Diane's classroom. Anybody got kids in Miss Diane's second grade classroom or have had your kids have gone through Miss Diane's second grade classroom? Do you know when we're praying for her today, here's what I learned. She's been doing that since 2003 when we moved in this building. Week in, week out. And you know what's happening now? Kids that were in her second grade class are now in her class helping 
in the, in the class. That is making a disciple who makes disciples. That's a great story. Are we doing that, church? We cannot settle for less. Because the gospel, the true gospel, the grace, when we fully understand the grace of God, there's something that happens in us that makes it impossible to not have faith, hope, and love explode from us. To, it, it generates as frustrating as we can all be toward one another. It makes us love one another even more. And it makes us look at life as an opportunity to take the kingdom of God into the places that we are, into our homes, into, our fa- into families, into the different places in the community, in our place of work, to our classroom, to our teams, to, to everything. We have that. And you know, it's not magic. It's a person that does it. It's a person who is grounded and lets God do their work in them and desires to bring that hope and love to the world. Let's pray.